Star Sports Zone with Pete McCarthy. Another night without playoff baseball, but that'll change tomorrow. NLCS Game 1 between the Dodgers and the Brewers. And then on Saturday, everybody will be in action. Astros, Red Sox get going in the ALCS, and it'll be Game 2 for the Brewers and the Dodgers. With that, we bring on Danny Nobler of Bleacher Report uh, here in the Sports Zone. Danny, how are you tonight? Good, P. I was just thinking, yeah, it's funny. It's raining outside, and now that... uh... Baseball season's over here in New York. We don't worry about whether it's raining or not, do we? Well, the Giants do, but uh, but yes, baseball-wise, it is just fine. Not uh, pouring over the radar any longer after uh, the Yankees get knocked out. I guess let's start with the Yankees, and they're the reason we don't have any baseball for a second straight night tonight. We're unable to rally up to get to Game 5. It's so much made of the Yankees' approach and that uh, they're too home-run reliant. What do you make of if the, the Yankees have to change some of their philosophy? Uh, you know, I don't think they have to have a drastic change. They, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with hitting home runs, obviously. And we've seen during these playoffs, teams are winning a lot of games by hitting home runs. When they're going up against the Red Sox, and as Aaron Boone said after the game the other night when they got eliminated, you know, they're chasing greatness. They're, you know, they won 100 games. They're not a bad team. They're a really good team. But to be a great team, you wonder if – maybe to at least to have another way to score a few runs. Not that they can't score without home runs, but they score mostly with home runs. And that's not a bad strategy in their stadium, not a bad strategy in 2018 going into 2019 baseball. But the Red Sox did have a few more ways to score than the Yankees did. That's not the only reason they won, but it certainly helped. Yeah, I, I just notice, and this goes – really across the whole sport it's just situationally you don't see guys really change they have the same approach no matter what's going on for instance when it's first and second nobody out and you're down three sure John Carlos Stanton is that game tying run and he could do it with one swing of the bat but you kind of want to keep the line moving in that situation it seems like some guys just don't have a another way to go about things at the plate right well here here's an example you know, you go a whole year now, and you barely see any team play hit and run at all. And I understand that totally. There's a lot of things against playing it in most situations, the way baseball's played right now. But in certain situations, it can be helpful. The Red Sox in both games three and four tried it one time each, both with Christian Vasquez up, who's not a big-time hitter. The first night, it worked, and it was a big part of that. Or not a big part, but it was part of that fourth inning rally, uh, which also, obviously, a big part was Aaron Boone not going to the bullpen. But it was part of that rally. In the next night, he fouled the ball off, and that was what they tried. It doesn't always work, but it did help them in, a, in one situation. It didn't win the game for them by itself, but the Red Sox taking going first to third more often – uh, stealing a base once in a while. They did have other ways to do things and and to score runs. Those 16 runs they scored that uh, in Game 3 until the home run off Austin Romine, the Brock Holt home run, they scored 14 without a home run. And, uh, you know, that's they, – they obviously, J.D. Martinez had a lot of home runs this year. Mookie Betts had a lot of home runs this year. They're capable of hitting home runs just like every other team – in baseball now is, 
but they are also capable of doing other things. Yeah, and you did see that as a difference, and the Yankees unable to really take advantage of their bullpen uh, in the way that they needed to, and so uh, the Yanks are done here, and we're left with the Red Sox-Astros in the American League as we chat again with Danny Nobler of Bleacher Report. So with the with this series, I and mean, these are the two teams that won the most in the American League, a 103-win Astros team, the defending champs, the Red Sox have won 108 and it feels like everybody's trying to position themselves as the underdog going into this series. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that either of these teams counts as an underdog right now. One of them is defending World Series champ. One of them won 108 games. They're both, you know, a lot of they faced each other in the playoffs last year. Uh, obviously, the Astros got by the Red Sox that time in, in kind of a series like what the Red Sox and Yankees played, a series that went four games and at times kind of felt close, but really in the end wasn't. Uh, but the Red Sox got better certainly after last year, adding J.D. Martinez. And even this year, you know, we'll see what the impact is going forward. But in this round, the impact is getting Nathan Evaldi even uh, during the season. Uh, the Astros, no question, they got better. They got better during last year when they added Justin Verlander, but they got better over the winter when they added Garrett Cole, who's their number two starter right now in a lot of ways. They could be a better team than they were last year. There's other things that maybe go the other way. Carlos Correa, I know there's some questions about his back. He hasn't been as big an impact guy. But they're really, really good. Both these teams, you talk about chasing greatness, these two teams are right on the way towards greatness. Uh, When you win a World Series and get back to the ALCS the next year, in the case of the Astros, when you win 108 games, win back-to-back AL East Division titles, in the case of the Red Sox, we're seeing... Uh, as close to greatness as baseball gets right now, uh, the, even though the National League teams aren't bad, I think these right now, you a good argument can be made that they're the two best teams yeah, in the this, sport this year. This is the class uh, here in the American League and, and a fun matchup. And you figure the Astros, the Red Sox, the Yankees, uh, these three teams are going to be facing each other in some big playoff series quite a bit coming up. You know, we noticed the Yankees and the Red Sox, as much as there's history there and the fan bases don't love each other, um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of dislike between these two teams, though that started to grow as the series went along a little bit and uh, whether the Red Sox were bothered or not by Aaron Judge's boombox uh, belting out New York, New York uh, there at Fenway Park. Uh, how about the Astros and the Red Sox? Is there any reason for there to be some dislike uh, between these two squads? Well, none. I mean, in fact, Alex Cora was the bench coach when they won the World Series last year. And, and learned a lot and was very excited about working with A.J. Hinch uh, during that time. So when you have two managers who work together, we've had that sometimes before, but when you have that, it's hard to then feel like there's going to be a, a, a lot of animosity between the two teams. And there wasn't really any that came out of the playoff series they played last year. I think you're absolutely right that going forward, potentially these two, and especially the Yankees and Red Sox again, given the, not only the history of the rivalry, but that both teams are really good, that they met in the playoffs this year, and that going into next year, you know, we'll see what happens over the winter in terms of moves and, mm-hmm. and things. But certainly with the young talent on both those teams, you have to figure there's going to be a lot of pennant races between those two teams and potentially more playoff series between them. So there's, there's room for that animosity to grow, although you're right, at the moment, it's nowhere near the level it was, say, in the 70s or in, the, uh, in a decade ago, a decade and a half ago, 304 when they played. 
not not among the players, and I don't even think really among the fan base. There there were a few of the uh, well, we'll say Boston stinks chants the other mm-hmm. day. There were certainly a few of those uh, Yankee stick chants, uh, even when the Mets were in Boston uh, the end of the season. But the, the, there's not a player on the Yankee team that gets the Red Sox fans ire really up. And same thing on the you, – you heard in the introductions the other night before game three yeah. at the stadium, the, the, the only real reaction to the Red Sox uh, being introduced was the, the funny cheers for David Price for having a bad game in game two. But the, there, there was you know, a few boos for Pedroia, but, of course, he wasn't even on the active roster. No, there was no – no David Ortiz like there was. There's no A-Rod on the other side. We miss those villains. And one guy I, I kind of see stepping into that role a little bit, and I'm, I'm sure he's beloved where he plays, but what about Alex Bregman? He's willing to go out on a uh, on a limb once in a while. Absolutely. No, he, he's a fun player, but no question, if you're on the other side, you could definitely not like uh, that he's so brash. And, and that's great. I mean, it's great for the game. But, yeah. I don't know if at this point the Astros have a real rival. The Rangers would be if the Rangers were good right now. Uh, but the, the Rangers are in a little bit of a rebuilding mode, and it's, it's hard to say that. I don't know that any team out there just hates the Astros. Uh, but if there were, they would probably hate Bregman. I, I agree with you on that. We're talking again with Danny Nobler at Bleacher Report right now. Uh, as far as the National League goes, uh, Brewers and Dodgers, it, it, there's differences between these two teams. The Brewers, uh, they haven't been in this spot in a long time. Meanwhile, the Dodgers, they seem to be here every year. Uh, so, you know, for this Dodger team especially, I would think anything less than a World Series title is disappointment. Uh, how are they handling that? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I, I think at the the, when the year started and they had the injuries they did, uh, the big one uh, this year being Justin Turner breaking his hand right at the end of spring training and missing the start of the year, and then when he came back not being the same guy, I think there was a little feeling, okay, well, we, maybe this is the year that it, you know, it goes a little step, a half step back, and then they go for it you know, into the future. But then they started playing better. The division opened up for them. They make the trade for Manny Machado, who's a rental player, but a really, really big-time star. And Walker Bueller came on the way he did. Turner came back and became – I think they started thinking, yeah, this is – the National League's opening up for us. They have no reason to think that they can't be the best team in the National League. And and once they get to the World Series, if they do, they're going to feel like they got to win it. And, you know – we talk about teams going a long time without winning and you know, every team has their own thing. And for, but for the Dodgers, that idea that they haven't won it since 1988, since that Kirk Gibson year, I mean, you know, think about Mets fans winning the world series in 86 or 88. We're only talking two two years sooner. Mm -hmm. It does feel like a long time. It is a long time. And uh, you know, the same way you might hear from Mets players that they get tired of just seeing, you know, the, the highlights of, of 86 and the 86 players. Well, believe me, Dodger players have felt the same way for a long time about seeing Kirk Gibson's home run. And they would love to have something new where there's another championship. And you're right. There's going to be a feeling like they they are supposed to win. And And one of the things that made the playoffs this year fun is you had a lot of teams – in that situation, 
the the Yankees, whether we think they had a real reason to feel that way or not, came into the season and, and definitely even into the playoffs thinking they were supposed to win. Absolutely, the Red Sox thought that way, and even more so after winning 108. After winning it last year and getting better, the Astros, no question, felt that way. Maybe not the Brewers, but now that they're there, I'm sure, and they played great, I'm sure they're thinking, why not? Sure. Hey, you talk about the the mindset of the Dodgers. I mean, it, it feeds right into Clayton Kershaw as well, right? Where he throws eight scoreless against the Braves, and it's like, well, that's nice. But until this guy throws a shutout game seven, it's still going to be well, postseason. He's no Bumgarner. Well, and, and also, you know, he's been there through this time, and he's part of that they haven't won since '88. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's been there in playoffs. You know, the Dodgers. Well, they haven't won since 88. They've been in a lot of division series and championship series where they thought they could have won, and they didn't. And Kershaw's part of that, and he's got the opt-out to the contract at the end of this year, which we don't know what's going to end up happening with that. But there's always the thought, is this the last go-around? I think you're absolutely right. There's some pressure on him. Uh, And it does. it's part of the interesting part of this series, this NLCS, that – when we talk about the Brewers, we don't talk about any starting pitchers. When yeah, we talk well, about the Dodgers, we sure do. And we talk about not just Kershaw, but we talk about Walker Bueller, the the kid coming up mm-hmm. being maybe the, the next Kershaw for them. And we talk about even Yin Jin Ryu, who's really been good going down the stretch. Uh, but, yeah, I, I would say Kershaw is, you know, Puig's a huge name there. Justin Turner's a big, big name. But Kershaw's as big as it gets in terms of, the pressure the Dodgers have been under to try to win. No doubt. Danny Nobler, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks so much for the time tonight. Be great talking to you. All right. Uh, Danny Nobler, check out his work at, at Bleacher Report, uh, giving us uh, a little playoff preview there. And uh, we'll dive into that uh, a little bit more later. It's the uh, Game 1 starters uh, were uh, announced today. Uh, and uh, we'll also update you what's happening with the New York Mets as far as uh, the GM search goes. And then uh, Pete Alonzo having a big night at the uh, Arizona Fall League. Uh, so that's coming up. We can take some Mets calls coming up. Baseball calls, 800-321-0710. It's the Sports Zone with Pete McCarthy on The Voice of New York, 710-WOR. entities. 710-WOR. Putting you back into the sports zone. With Pete McCarthy. On the Mets with a relatively quiet day as far as the GM hunt goes as they uh, reportedly had Doug Melvin in for an interview. Of course, uh, Melvin... Uh, with the uh, Texas Rangers, Milwaukee Brewers in the past. Uh, Mike Puma, the New York Post, uh, reporting he was interviewed today. And it was interesting yesterday hearing Mike Chernoff's name bounced around. He, of course, the general manager of the Cleveland Indians. And, and that's exactly the kind of candidate I, I think the Mets should be you know, trying to nab here and trying to land somebody who has experience being a GM, somebody who's had some success and you know maybe is willing to... Um, take a, a role as president of baseball operations. It would be a, you know, jump up in title and, and be in New York. And you'd hope, you know, have the kind of payroll that enables them to do some different things. Uh, bump in salary, all those kinds of things can be uh, enticing. There's plenty of guys around baseball that grew up in New York. And, and those are the kinds of candidates uh, I think the Mets should be trying to find. So 
You know, Chernoff's name is in the mix. Still unclear uh, based on a, a lot of reports that are bouncing around over the last 24 to 48 hours whether or not he is actually going to interview for the position. But, you know, a good sign with his name at least being involved here. Uh, and, you know, another uh, young candidate from the Tampa Bay Rays organization. Again, the kind of forward thinking team that you'd like to understand what has worked for them. Uh, and how can a team like the Mets benefit uh, from some of those things? Uh, as far as the Mets go, though, of course, they need some young players to be coming up from the minor leagues and, and make a difference here, and one of them is expected to be Pete Alonzo this year. And the Arizona Fall League is always a, a real interesting spot for the top prospects in the game where they can sink or swim a bit. You're going up against the top prospects in baseball on a night-in, night-out basis. Uh, so you find out a little bit more about some guys. And one thing that's been interesting about Alonzo, at least at the plate, every test that he has had, uh, he has answered. And he did it again last night in his first uh, Arizona or in his first Arizona Fall League game. Just listen to how he crushed this baseball. That's that's a good sound. Play it again. He ain't listening to that all day long. That, that makes it feel like it's about 40 degrees warmer outside. I mean, that's that's a good sound. That's good. And Alonzo, you know, home run. Uh, so he had a big night at the plate once again. And, you know, for Alonzo, all he did was hit last year. 36 home runs, 119 RBIs. The questions are, of course, on defense at first base and one of the reasons, and probably service time, a big one as well, why Alonzo didn't get called up last year. Now, you know, I, I still think there are multiple ways where Alonzo can help this Mets team. One being actually coming up, being that kind of right-handed power bat that you hope you could pair with Michael Conforto in the middle of the lineup, and you let him run at first base. Uh, the other way that he can help, and a big Arizona Fall League certainly would assist you with this, is potentially moving Alonzo. And it's something that I've talked about a lot over the last few months is in the match of so many corner infield and outfield types. And Jay Bruce ended up playing first base at the end of the year. Bruce is two more years on his contract. Uh, I think that Bruce is capable of being a contributor playing first base for this Mets team. And if I'm the Mets, I want a center fielder. I want somebody who's not only going to help me out offensively, but is going to be a big boon defensively. And we saw the Mets defense, it didn't improve as the season went along, but it was such a problem when you're faking it with Conforto or Nemo in center field, and those guys are corner outfielders. So I want to see them get better in that spot, and I would use Pete Alonso as trade bait to try to land that center fielder. Can you... You know, go out and grab a Jackie Bradley Jr. from Boston, who's a very solid two-way player. Can you go out and maybe you take a chance on a Byron Buxton? Has he fallen out of favor in Minnesota? A guy with a lot of talent that they left in the minor leagues at the end of the season. And you hope he could put it together with his second team, former number 2 overall pick in the draft. Uh, these are the kind of things that you can look at. And I'm fully willing to... You know, chance at that, maybe you do really regret moving somebody like Alonzo, who has all this power and offensive ability. But I think in the National League, 
until we see him, really, and I haven't seen him defensively a whole lot, and we have heard about various players in the past that Michael Conforto would struggle in the outfield and uh, that Dom Smith was going to be tremendous at first base, and a lot of these reports have been wrong. Jeff McNeil, that he didn't have a position and looked terrific at second base uh, when he had the opportunity the last couple of months of the year. You know, With all those things being in the mix, I'd want to see Alonzo at some point at first base, but you might not get that opportunity if you're the Mets and if you can go out and grab a, a center fielder it's going to help I'll always take a center fielder over a first baseman and Alonzo might be a great bat maybe he's a DH in the American League and has a ton of success there but uh, you don't know exactly you know how he's going to fit in at, at first going forward uh, and with that you know again if you can capitalize on that I would really really look into it but uh, either way, whether you want to keep Alonzo, potentially move Alonzo, the more he hits, the better he does, the better off the, the Mets are. And, you know, that'll be one of the key decisions that the Mets front office and whoever it is that ends up as their general manager will have to make over the course uh, of this offseason. What is Pete Alonzo? Is he an American League DH? Is he a Mets first baseman of the future? Are you able to move uh, a Jay Bruce or a Todd Frazier and make some room for him somewhere? You know, these are the kind of things that they really got to figure out, and you got to have a philosophy. What kind of team do you want to be? Sandy Alderson's philosophy, we know what it was. He wanted sluggers, he wasn't big on defense, he wanted power pitching, and the Mets, at times, it was good. It, it rode them to the World Series in 2015, uh, but as the team aged and uh, you didn't stay as healthy as they needed to pitching-wise, the last two seasons have been pretty rough to watch. Um I think you need more of a balance there and some more defense being involved. There's no doubt Pete Alonso, he would be a Sandy Alderson player. Uh, don't worry about the D. Slap him at first base. Hope you get the 35 home runs. Even as a rookie, I think that's the kind of number that you could reasonably expect from Alonso. Uh, but, you know, what'll be the philosophy going forward here? Mickey Calloway, if he has much say in things, certainly sounded like he wanted to see a lot more defense and athleticism and some different kind of hitters on this Mets team going forward. And, you know, that is something that I do agree with Mickey Calloway on. And this could, you know, drive it to a whole conversation about analytics and what kind of players you want up there at the plate. Uh, I know there's been a big conversation around the Yankees and Giancarlo Stanton and are they too power uh, oriented? We talked about a little bit with Danny Nobler before as well. I really think it's about situational hitting. There are times where the home run is the way to go and let it rip, and there are times where that's not what you're looking for and you want to keep the line moving. Uh, and I, I thought Jeff McNeil was the perfect example of the kind of hitter that you'd like to see in this league. At times, he had the big swing. He was looking to put it in the upper deck, and good for him. And there were times where he's looking to move a runner second or third, but not just giving up and out, but trying to get a base hit to the right side. And, hey, if it's a ground ball to second base, so be it. The guy gets over to third. You need a fly ball, man on third, less than two out. Get the fly ball. Put the ball in play. Make something happen. Those are the things that you appreciate. You know, strikeouts don't matter when there's nobody on, but there are men on base, you're damn well right they matter. They matter in a big way. That strikeout John Carlos Stanton had in the ninth inning with two on, nobody out, it kills you. At least put the ball in play and try to make something happen, and that's where uh, you do see you know some of the, the situational hitting, I, I think, fall by the wayside. And that's it's harder to... You know, look at in the numbers, it's not going to show up overall for the season, but 
you know, different situations, you got to have different approaches. And I just think there are too many guys in the league that have the same approach every single time they step up to the plate. 800-321-0710. Again, 800-321-0710. Uh, what would you like to see the Mets do this offseason? We can take some calls on that. We'll have NFL picks coming up a little bit later, and uh, we'll get into these uh, two LCS series, Astros, Red Sox, Brewers, Dodgers, and how they're going to set things up game one on the NLCS tomorrow, ALCS on Saturday. It's the Sports Zone with Pete McCarthy on The Voice of New York, 710 WO. We're back in the WOR Sports Zone with Pete McCarthy. That's interesting. Uh, John Heyman, FanCredSports.com, just put out uh, one of his columns, and he goes team by team throughout the leagues. And as far as Mets notes go, he says there's a split on manager Mickey Calloway within the Mets front office, so expect him to have a short leash in 2019. Uh, now, the expectation being that Callaway uh, will come back. The new GM might have something to say about that. Uh, and even Callaway you know, understood that uh, as far as his comments at the end of the season where he basically said, yeah, whatever is best for the organization is fine with me, even if it uh, does not include him. Uh, and then a couple of interesting things in here. But first of all, who is what's their split in the front office when the Mets right now are searching for a GM and potentially a president of baseball operations as well? Is it actually a split amongst ownership as far as you know maybe uh, Jeff and Fred having different opinions on Mickey? I think that's interesting. It's a, who else is really in power uh, in that organization right now? Uh, so you know something for Callaway to overcome here and. You know, a couple of things mentioned going shark fishing with Donald Trump Jr., which really shouldn't be that big a deal. And then, um, you know, really just how he handled some of the sticky situations, as it was said, uh, with the media. And uh, maybe most obviously being when Mick, uh, when Ioannis Cespedes came back late in the season and was hurt and none of the nobody in the front office was available to speak and Callaway got stuck going back and forth and just kind of confused the whole situation there and uh, the Mets didn't look good uh, over the course of that weekend so um, you know something to keep in mind there for Mickey Callaway if you're a fan of his well he's gonna have to gear it up quick and if you're not uh, there's your hope that uh, there might be a change coming sooner rather than later but there's no doubt in the Mets they want to be a win-now team. They were a win-now team this past season. There was a long learning curve for Callaway just in terms of managing the games. Uh, and he, he seemed to get there eventually, but... Um you know, there is, uh, there's work to do. 800-321-0710, the number. Let's go to Eric on Long Island. Talk some Mets here. What's on your mind, Eric? Hi, Pete. Uh, well, I just want to throw this out there. Uh, something positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last half of the season, the last 81 games, the Mets were 44 and 37. I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, that's, that's an 88 win pace. That's even better than people thought. And that was with Yoenis playing exactly one game, I believe. The one game in Yankee Stadium before yeah. he went out and made that announcement. So they actually did pretty well. Yeah, they finished I strong. Mean, I say, yeah, I say get a catcher, fix the bullpen, and you know what? If you can, I know those are, that's easier said. And here's something else. Now, I know no one mentions him, but he did go, adjust his swing, and he's a great fielder. Juan Lagares was batting over 300 when he went down. I mean, he, he could give him a chance in center field. He's a gold glover. He just can't he depend on him. There. He's too often hurt. 
Yeah, okay. If that's it, then that's it, I guess. But you know what? It seems like the Mets seem to spine guys in their early 30s and who never get on the DL up until then and then wind <laughs> up on the DL just out of law of averages. No, that was Todd Frazier like, this year. Yeah, I mean, he was never on the DL. Well, guess what? Law of averages caught up with it. I mean, I, I just thought that they actually had a good – I mean, they had a really good second half when you think of it, obviously because of the pitching. And I'll put my vote in to keep Dave Island no matter what you do with Mickey Calloway because I just for the work he did with Wheeler. Absolutely. I, I, I agree with you on Island. He was uh, phenomenal with his pitching staff. And uh, thanks for the call, Eric. Uh, you know, and they, they did finish strong. And that's one of the reasons Vicky Calloway, I, I think Jeff Wilpon expressed they want to have Mickey back. Uh, and the team didn't quit when it would have been easy for the team to do just that. They continued to play hard down the stretch. I think Jeff McNeil coming up really sparked this team and gave them something that they didn't have before. And uh, you figure he's looking to be the everyday second baseman next year. Uh, but the Mets, they, they do have work to do this offseason. I think it's more than just a catcher and the bullpen. Uh, they have to remake basically the entire bullpen. They need a closer. They need a setup man to pair with Robert Gesellman. And you look up at the end of the season, Gesellman, I think he had an ERA over four. Uh, so, you know, he wasn't perfect. He, he did adjust to the role well. He's got the mentality for it. But I wouldn't exactly just lock him in and say, hey, he's your eighth inning guy and you're ready to go. They have a lot of work to do in that pen. They need a lefty, whether that's uh, trusting Daniel Zamora or I think you have to bring in a- another veteran as well. And unfortunately, Jerry Blevins uh, had a you know rough last couple of weeks there after it seemed like he had put it together. So you don't necessarily have a you know, ton of faith that he should be that guy, uh, but he could certainly be part of the mix. And then... Um, yeah, I think they need help in center field, that outfield defense. I thought Austin Jackson did a nice job defensively and added another dimension, but you got to be better offensively at that position than Austin Jackson was. I understand Ligaris, yeah, he was breaking, and things look good, but it seems every year he's tearing some kind of ligament, and we've seen him have the thumb problems. He Now the big toe this past year, kicking the wall. Uh, I, I think he's exactly the kind of player that I would like to see out there in center. But if you can't depend on him to play more than 40, 50 games, and unfortunately that's been the reality recently, what do you have? Uh, Lagar's going to be on this team. He's going to be a, a fourth or fifth outfielder for them. I don't think he's going anywhere. He's still making a, a, a decent amount of money uh, this upcoming season. So he'll be in the mix, but I To me, I'd rather see him go out, get that center fielder, get somebody who's a two-way player. I don't want a 30-year-old outfielder. I'm not asking for A.J. Pollock. I'm asking for them to go out, make a trade, and find a young, athletic center fielder uh, that could do some different things for you, that could give you some extra speed on the bases as well and and, change the balance of this team. I don't mind having the Todd Frazier, Jay Bruce, home run or bust kind of players in there, but you don't want to have a team stack full of them. Those guys have value. There is value in the home run. You want to mix it up a little bit, and I think that's something that the Mets saw over the the course of this season. Now, so the starting pitching, it was healthy as could be um, the second half of the year, right? Zach Wheeler pitched at an all-star level the second half. Jacob deGrom wrapped up a Cy Young award-winning season and was phenomenal in the second half. Um, 
You saw Noah Syndergaard come back. Well, it wasn't great. It's still very, very good, even when it's uh, not what the expectations often are for Thor. And I think the questions going forward as far as the starting rotation is just, can you get that again? Can you get what you got in the second half for an entire season going forward? Can everybody stay healthy? Um, you know, Jason Vargas pitching as well as he did in the second half versus what he did in the first half where it was just terrible. Uh, is that something that's repeatable? These are all you know, those big questions that hang over the Mets where, yeah, it's easy to say, well, they had a great second half. They did have a lot of things go right along the way. And depending on those things to continue to go right, it's not going to be enough. Yeah, they need a catcher as well. So, you know, there's a shopping list uh, for the Mets this offseason, no doubt about it. And you'd like to see them in on Manny Machado as well. That's the kind of move that's a, a franchise difference maker that, you know, guys 25, 26 years old, those are the guys you go all in on. They did it with Carlos Beltran. It paid off in a big way. They did it with Mike Piazza. It paid off. This is one of those opportunities to make that kind of move, and no matter how much he's making, he'd probably be worth it. Changes the entire way your franchise is thought of if you're willing to shop in that aisle. The Mets haven't been recently beyond the four-year contract for Ioannis Cespedes, uh, but can they find a way to make that kind of move, backload the contract, whatever they got to do to try to land that kind of bat? He doesn't necessarily fit in defensively perfectly, but you find a spot for a guy like Manny Machado and that kind of right-handed bat, and that's a total game-changer in the middle of this lineup. 800-321-0710, the number. Uh, We'll have Bob with shoes and radio voice of the Jets uh, joining us at 8.05. Look forward to that. And uh, NFL picks to come, much, much more. It's the Sports Zone with Pete McCarthy on the Voice of New York, 710 W O.